0: Putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist— in bringing many children to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who thought though fear and death were subject to lifelong slavery. The word of the Lord.
1: Our second reading is taken from John chapter 14, verses 8 to 14. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will they do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it.
2: Would you pray with me? Father, we pray to live into your new creation by the faith that you've given us in Jesus. By this faith, may we work and may we pray that your will be done as it is in heaven. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So as we've heard from Tim last Sunday, our reading from John 14 began with Jesus comforting his disciples after they had just been bombarded with a series of bad news. They just learned that Jesus wasn't actually going to stick around even after he had just been hailed as king of Israel by all of Jerusalem. And then he said to them that one of you will be betraying me at the end of this dinner we're having. And then he said after that, even Peter himself would be disowning him, would be disowning Jesus as his Lord and Master. Now all this bad news was coming at them like just in rapid fire. That was very troubling for them. That was not at all how they envisioned things. That was not at all how they saw things play out. I mean, it would be like if now at the stage of, This pandemic with vaccines rolling out to everyone, we get news from the government that the lockdown will go on indefinitely. It will go on for longer due to unforeseen complications, giving no other details. That would be troubling for us. That would not be how we see things play out at this point in time. We would naturally have so many questions. We would have so many questions in our head. Have the variants spread so much, do the vaccines even work against them? What would lockdown for the rest of the year even look like? We dare not imagine that. We would have so many questions. The disciples had their questions. They were bouncing all over their heads. Peter, as usual, was the first to jump in. Jesus, who's going to betray you? Where are you going, Jesus? Why can't I follow you now? Then Thomas jumps in, Jesus, we don't know where you're going, so we how can we even know the way? Then this time in our gospel reading, Philip himself jumps in, and but with not so much a question, but with a request. It was more so a demand. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn now, if you are able, to John 14. We read in verse 8, Philip makes his request. It was actually his demand of Jesus. Jesus, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Just show us the Father. Philip's request was pretty much a demand. It was coming out of his frustration. Because earlier to Thomas's question, Jesus had responded quite cryptically. I am the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Whenever you see me, you see the Father. Now, Philip may have gotten frustrated by Jesus' often cryptic responses. That was very usual of Jesus. Maybe it got to him, and Philip now jumps in, and then he presumes to speak for everyone else, wanting to get to the very bottom of things. He's had enough. Philip demanded from Jesus, just, just show us God. Just, that's enough for us. He keeps talking about seeing and knowing the Father, and just make it plain for us. That's not too much to ask. That would be enough for us. You've done all of these things. Just show us the Father. Now, Phillips, the man is very much our own. It's very much our own. There are times we too want to get to the bottom of things when we're just so tired, so frustrated at the mystery of faith, what seems to be the shrouded will of God on top of the uncertainty, on top of the unpredictability of life. We have our moments where we just want to get right at it and demand from God, why can't you just show yourself to us? Or at least tell me what you want me to know. Just show me what you want me to see. That's not too much to ask, right? That would be enough. Just make it plain. Just make it plain to us. It's our plea to know everything plainly. It's our plea at least to relieve the itch of curiosity, to relieve the discomfort of not ever knowing, to be done away with what feels like this tiring game of charades. So then we hear Jesus respond to Philip in verse 9. Have I been with you so long? You still don't know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How can you say that? Jesus' response was matching Philip's level of frustration. Here, Jesus is now expressing, he's expressing his own sadness, even his own disappointment at Philip's request. Jesus was essentially saying this, three years, three years you've known and seen me very, very closely, Philip. I've done what others have been unable. You've heard me teach with unmatched authority. Perform the impossible, heal and restore, multiply and raise up. And yet many do not believe in what I've done. Then you, one of my closest disciples, ask to see God like you've never seen him at all. Have you been with me all these years, with your eyes and ears covered? Jesus' response wasn't surprising. It's not surprising because it was already what Philip knew. It was already what Philip knew. It's already what the disciples do. It's also what we as Christians already know. They and we don't often apprehend what we already know. We often miss it. We often forget it. Jesus was saying that all they and we would need to know and see about God has already been known and seen in him. But don't we often quietly and wishfully demand for more than what the Bible has already borne witness about Jesus? We would wish for some special sign tailored for us, for God to do some spectacular and undeniable performance for us. That's what we're really asking, isn't it? Tailored for us right now in our present specific circumstance. But God cannot be mocked. God cannot be mocked. God is not our beck and call who shows up whenever we ask him to. We ring the bell. We rub the lamp. We put in the toony in the vending machine. He will not show up that way. If we wouldn't know anything about God, he is his own person with his own motivations, his own plans, his own calendar. He has scheduled things way in advance already. And he doesn't owe it to us to adjust them for us. He doesn't owe it to us the privilege of knowing or seeing him. He doesn't owe it to us. But, but, in fact, God has adjusted to us. He has shown us everything that we need to see about him. He gave up all that he is and has. He shared our humanity in our weakness and fatigue, in our pain and sadness, in our loss and in our death, whenever we see and hear Jesus Christ in the scriptures, we see and hear the God who had adjusted and shared with us, the God who had been become mortally domestic in Jesus Christ, and yet he is the same God who cannot and will not be domesticated by us. He will not allow that, but he has come to us. He has been seen by us. Jesus continues in verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now on the most basic level, what substantiates Jesus' union with God is his works. His works. Now in the sense of the word, Jesus' works wasn't about Jesus' output but about the sense of bearing fruit. It's about fruits. Fruits being signs. They're signals. They're signposts. That not only is a plant or a tree alive and healthy, but it's of a certain kind of plant. It's of a certain variety of tree. You shall know them by their fruits, Jesus said elsewhere. So not only did Jesus' work signify who God is, They verified that Jesus is the same God who showed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to all of Israel, to to David, the same God of the Jewish scriptures. His works, his fruits verified that this is the same God of the Old Testament. Now, Jesus' disciples were deeply religious people, formed and rooted in their history and sacred texts. The works that they saw Jesus perform, they corresponded. Corresponded with the historic works of God that he had done in Israel's redemptive history. Jesus' works aligned with the covenant promises that God made long ago to Israel. All this to say that in Jesus, we get to finally see, we get to finally see God's promises come true. We get to know what God is finally up to, what he's all about. In Jesus, we get to know God as God with us, Befriending the religious and rebellious alike, dining with the rejects of society, embracing the untouchables. In Jesus, we get to know God as God for us healing, mending, restoring, advocating, upholding the cause of the powerless, giving God's voice to those without a voice. In Jesus, we get to know God below us, who's stooping down low to wash our feet, who lifts us up from underneath. Touching our uncleannesses. In Jesus, we get to know God over us when he was lifted up on the cross. Drawing all people to himself. Rising from the dead to ascend to his father's throne until he reappears to judge everyone. In Jesus, we get to know God inside us, his Holy Spirit. Making his home and temple in our mortal bodies. In Jesus, we get to know God around us, who is ruling and reigning over every matter and spirit, decreeing his will on earth as in heaven, sowing all over space and time the seeds of his new creation. Jesus Christ is the full disclosure of Yahweh's works and promises to usher in his new creation throughout all the new universe. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. For it's the Father who dwells in the Son, for he's the one at work in me. Now then comes one of the most radical promises Jesus made in verse 12. Now whatever we hear Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, he wants us to pay closer attention to what he's about to say. So in verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will they do because I am going to the Father. Now, Jesus wasn't referring just to the apostles. He was talking about every Christian. He says, whoever believes in me, that is, any Christian will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will they do. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? Now it obviously doesn't mean that Christians can replicate the miracles of Jesus on command. It certainly means that Christians can do better miracles than Jesus. It can't mean that. I mean what greater miracle is there than Jesus' death and resurrection? So what did Jesus mean here? Again, we're going back to that that word works, right? It means fruits. Fruits not only show that the plant is alive and healthy, it's showing that it's a certain kind and variety. The fruits that Jesus bore show that he's of a divine variety, so to speak. That is Jesus' works, his fruits, showed that he and God are in fact one. Whatever he did, the fruits that he bore were seeing God. So the question is for us will our works, will our works show that we and God are one? Will that show that? Will the fruits that we bear show that we're of a Jesus variety? Or will it show that we're of a hypocritical variety? Will it show that we're of a religiously self-righteous kind? Will our works show who Jesus is, who God is? Or will they just show who we are truly, showing our own glory? That's the question. Jesus is saying that if you're a Christian, you will bear fruits to show who God is, who Jesus is. To do the works that demonstrate that God and humanity can in fact be one. Just like the Father and the Son are one. Okay, but what, what, what did Jesus mean by doing greater works? What does greater works mean? The clue is in the last clause, at the very end of verse 12. That clause, because I'm going to the Father. To bring out what Jesus was saying here, let me rephrase verse 12 then. Truly, truly, I say to you, since I'm going to the Father, any Christian will also do the works that I do. Any greater works at that. It's because Jesus is going to the Father that Christians can do greater works. So what the heck does that even mean then? So I hope you'll bear with me here. It's just a bit because you ought to follow along here. Jesus here was referring to his ascension. He's referring to his ascension. The ascension was not understood as Jesus levitating up to the skies into heaven. No, the church historically understood ascension as Jesus ascending his father's throne. Like when you say a monarch has ascended their throne, a king or queen climbing up to their throne, sitting in power, begins their rule and reign. Now, Jesus was referring to this event when he will have his homecoming into the realm where God's rule and and authority are perfectly seen and accomplished. That's the realm we call heaven. Now it's in this heaven that, from which Jesus will ascend his father's throne to rule and reign over all things visible and invisible. But before Jesus could do that, before Jesus could do that, he has yet to do his magnum opus, his greatest works, the biggest fruit that he would bear to fully show who God really is. That was Jesus has yet to die on the cross and he has yet to be raised from the dead. In our first reading from Hebrews that Adam had read for us, the writer explains one of these hidden cosmic outcomes that the cross accomplished. It's in the last verse, in verse 14. He himself, that is Jesus, likewise, partook of the same things, our flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, the writer here was saying that before the cross, before Jesus died, everything was terrorized by the devil, by death, by destruction. But then after Jesus died, the new normal became that everything was suddenly liberated from the tyranny of the devil, death, and destruction. Now, these three are no longer in charge. They're no longer able to terrorize like they used to long time ago. Sure, they still have their bite, but they have no more sting. We still see the ravaging of death and the devil and destruction all around us, but the mess that they're making right now is only like the mess of a child throwing up a tantrum in the living room. I'm not minimizing the real damage and the unspeakable mutilation that these three are continuing to do in our lives and throughout the world. I'm not minimizing that at all. But they could never ever lay waste as they once did before Jesus died on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus ushered in a new reality. He ushered in a new normal. Having disarmed the devil, crushed his head, defanged and declawed death and destruction. So now all things visible and invisible have been liberated. Time and history have been delineated as the age before Christ and the year of our Lord's dominion. That's how we understand time right now, all over the world. Remember then why Jesus said that his cousin, John the Baptizer, was the greatest person to be born in his time. And then he said this But you know what? The least, the most insignificant person to be born who believes in Jesus Christ in God's kingdom, that person is greater than John the Baptist. This is why now the works of a Christian. My works, your works if you're a Christian. there are greater works in that the church's work is a liberated kind of labor. A labor that has been unleashed by the hurricane blast of God's spirit who now hovers over the chaos of our world. A labor that's done during the age of God's new creation. A labor that can explicate and circulate the favor and promises of God in Christ. A labor that is now ratified in the name of Christ, the Son of God a labor that is never futile, a labor that is never in vain, a labor that bears the flowers and fruits of a recreated, immortal, and irreversible world that's coming into our earth. This is why justice and reconciliation are possible, even right now. This is why forgiveness and freedom, no matter how impossible they feel right now, they can be given by you. They can be received by you. Peace on earth, righteousness of life, truth spoken against corrupt power. There's something to be strived for even today. Whenever and however we labor for these in our lives, in Toronto, in the name of Christ, they can never be in vain. Because just as Jesus was raised with scars, yet visible in his body, our labor in this life will be assumed and multiplied and carried into the new creation. Truly, truly, I say to you, greater works than these will you do because I have ascended to the Father. Because Jesus has ascended to his throne, it's not surprising what Jesus said in the next verse, in verse 13. This will be my last and quick point. We read in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Prayer in Jesus' name is the primary way, in fact, that we do greater works in this new creation. Prayer is the thing. Now it doesn't mean Jesus' name is a magic word that automatically makes things happen. Now, praying in Jesus' name is about expanding the square footage of heaven into the spaces and corners of the earth. And in fact, it begins into the square footage of your own heart, of your soul, and your brain, and your appetite, and your desires, and how your body moves. It's asking for whatever Jesus stands for, because he remains seated on God's throne. It's it's appealing for whatever Jesus is all about. It's needing, it's wanting, it's desiring for whatever Jesus desires for us and for the world. That's what it means to pray in his name. Like, put it this way, Jesus has literally handed over his name to us and the church. Just like in the same way that that Persian emperor, Artaxerxes, in the book of Esther, he handed over his signet ring and his right finger to Mordecai, the Jew, to ratify any imperial decree with the emperor's stamp onto any seal to any kind of letter in that seal. That that, that didn't mean that Mordecai could decree whatever policy he wanted. The Persian emperor still retained executive decision, but it was no longer strictly unilateral. Mordecai was now involved in the highest political affairs of the empire. Before then, he could not do that. But with that ring... He could do enact the emperor's wishes through all of the world. When Jesus invites us to pray in his name, he's involving us to decree and enact his new creation throughout the universe into our world. It begins in our lives. We are now involved with the highest, most divine affair of God's kingdom on earth because we have the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is involving us to ratify his Father's will on earth as it is in heaven. So that's why we're praying boldly. We don't pray lightly. We pray earnestly, but never wantonly or selfishly. We are praying in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who is seated on his Father's throne. Now, during this present age of the new creation, may we do greater works. May we pray greater works, bear greater fruits to show what kind of Lord and Savior Jesus is, what variety of Christians we are, what kind of God we love and serve and worship, to bear witness to our neighbors, to our family, to our co-workers, that the new creation has, in fact, and already broken into our lives. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus will do whatever we ask in his name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Let's do that. Greater works. Pray in Jesus' name. See to it that the new creation spreads all over in our lives and around the world in the name of Christ.